Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We look okay. Sound okay? You look wonderful. You sound like luxurious bed sheets. <laughs> no one has ever said that to me before. I like to break barriers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to? Do you want to? Like, um, I was thinking of having you tell my audience how awesome you are and how wonderful this conversation we're about to have is. So we can just uh, have you introduce things this time. Oh, God. Really? <laughs> no. I can do it. But you never know what you're going to get when I do these introductions. <laughs> I think you should do it. Okay. Hello, and welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. This is your host, Benjamin Boyce, who also runs a YouTube channel of the same name, more or less. Uh, Benjamin Boyce is my YouTube channel name. There's this A in the middle of it that you guys can guess what it means. I mean, good luck with that. But... Who cares about me and my channel when we have something fascinating to talk about, such as Jungian interpretation of dreams and psychic realities with Lisa Marciano. We speak about dream symbolism. We talk about symbolism itself. We talk about language. We talk about the ways in which the unconscious manifests and how the conscious grapples with that. We also talk about the ways in which psychiatry grapples with making sense out of the world that isn't necessarily reducible to a stable scientific floor. This is a wide-ranging conversation that lasts that stereotypical psychologist hour. And uh, make sure to like and subscribe. And if you are listening to the podcast, go ahead and give this a thumbs up raving or favorite it because that matters somehow, somewhere, in some fashion. Here is Lisa Marciano. You brought up uh, that you you had more thoughts about something we were talking about last yeah, time, and yeah, I yeah. just had yeah, it, yeah. and I just lost yeah, yeah. it. Do you no, remember I, what I that can was? remember. So we were talking about these sort of um, medically shaped, socially contagious um, psychiatric diseases that have plagued humanity for, oh, I don't know, probably at least a couple thousand years. And yeah. And you said to me something like, why... You know, why is psychiatry, why is mental health particularly susceptible to this? And I said, I don't know. But I kept on thinking about that question. And actually, it's sort of like the answer is fairly obvious when, when you think about it. And, and uh, so I'm, I'm wanting to, to share with you my thoughts. Did Can you I say go? mimetically shaped? Yeah, medically shaped. M- medically oh, med. shaped. Okay. All right. Med. Medically. Okay. Like, like Me- pills meaning, and. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, and, no, no. and I, I'll actually, I'll explain more about what I mean by that right now, which is that um, unlike um, diseases of the body, many of which have identifiable pathogens, um, psychiatric illness is, is, you know, there is, there's no clearly identifiable biological cause for any psychiatric illness except for, say, like dementia, 
you know, maybe there's one other, but I, you know, I mean, clearly several of them are, are you know, there's strong evidence that there's a, a big biological component, Okay. but, but really these are the, um, the symptoms of psychiatric illness are, are fairly subjective. They're often, um, uh, reported, you know, rather than observed. So if someone comes to your office and says, I feel depressed. And then you can ask about, how's your mm. appetite? Are you sleeping? You know, how's your mood? Are you tearful? But, but those are, I mean, those, I'm not saying that they're not real, but those are subjective experiences, you mm-hmm. know, how we feel. And to a certain extent, you know, eating and sleeping, I mean, reporting on that certainly has a, a big element of subjectivity. And there is a component of this where that which is doing the reporting is that which is actually affected by the exactly. Element. Yeah, there is no Archimedean point hmm. to for observing ourselves, right? Because we're the thing that we're observing. Yeah. But but um, so you know, psych like psychological distress is real, but how it manifests often is determined in part by a kind of co-negotiation between patients, um, between advocates, between the mental health profession, and between doctors. Okay, yeah. You know? So, so another thing, these things kind of get, um, they're, they're sort of emergent phenomenon. And, I, I, you know, I, I think the more I think about it, the more I think that, you know, it's like, it's really arguable how many things in the DSM are actually like discrete entities that don't have this big kind of uh, cultural overlay, right? Because another, if you look at um, cross-cultural psychiatry, like there are yeah. different cultures have different diagnoses. They might be describing very similar phenomenon. Again, I'm not saying this is not real and yeah. and real in the sense of um, legitimate and it matters. It's just that how we understand it is this really fascinating process that lots of people have written about. There's this guy named Shorter who's written about this a lot. S-H-O-R-T-E-R. I'm just about and, done with uh, Ethan Waters' Crazy Like Us, which describes yes, that too. Yeah. Yes, yes. This, this is, he does a brilliant job of talking about this. This is such a wonderful book. But, and, and Waters mentions this concept that Shorter came up with as the symptom pool, right? So, yeah. so there's, there's this way that unconsciously uh, what gets created is this, this kind of this way of being ill – that has cultural legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, when, when your psyche is suffering, when we're suffering, we need to have some way to communicate that our suffering is legitimate to those around us. And so yeah. unconsciously, we just dip right into the symptom pool and pull something out. But that doesn't but, mean that... I guess, so, special care has to be applied to the methodology of how we negotiate the distress and the ways of managing that distress and, and yeah. taking into account that uh, any psychological disorder is going to take a shape that's cultural and any sort of psychiatric uh, confrontation that, that involves communication is also going to take a cultural shape and apply a cultural shape to this. So there's, mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. these uh, factors that are shaping this stuff. 
Yeah, and I would say, I mean, it's definitely there's a cultural piece, but there's even an interpersonal piece. I mean, it's a running joke in psychoanalysis that if you go to a Freudian, you're going to have Freudian dreams. And if you go to a Jungian, you're going to have Jungian dreams. I totally see that. You know, mm. when I'm working mm -hmm. with someone, we're we're co-negotiating what's kind of expected in the space between us. And yeah. a lot of that is informed necessarily by, you know, by my training and my expectations. So there's this way that we just do this. And I think you're right. It has to be addressed very carefully because one of the things that can happen is, and I, and I think this does happen, you know, in the 90s, 80s, 90s, when there was this kind of, um, you know, epidemic, I guess I'll say, of um, multiple personality disorder, like that was, it's just so cool and exotic, yeah. That if you were a therapist or a psychiatrist and you had someone come in who just gave the faintest little hint that that was maybe going on, you know, it would be hard to not be like, oh, wow, that's so, that's so exciting. I, I've got one of these. I've got, you know, it's like the unicorn, you know. Well, and yeah, so you, you get to explore this uh, this field of possibility, which is very rich with uh, with material to, you know, to, I guess, practice and then to experiment with making somebody better. If you open up that potential diagnosis. Well, and, and they're right. And there can, yes, I mean, it can be exciting. There can be a little bit of an inflation around it. Like you're going to be that psychiatrist that's going to, you know, help integrate a, a multiple or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and, and what, what might happen in a case like that is that you unconsciously pull for a certain presentation because you know, the patient can read the excitement in your voice, mm -hmm. you know? So, and I mean, I just think this is part of being human. This is just a, a, an extension of how we naturally influence each other when we interact. So. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking, you made me think about also diagnosing and prognosing societal ills and how we mm -hmm. talk about societal problems shapes the problem. And so a lot Absolutely. of this discussion about the culture war is a battle of narratives, which then project a certain shape and then project a certain solution or even give rise to certain problems. Every narrative, uh, yes. you know, just like in, a, in that small field of, of a, uh, a patient and a doctor in, in a psychological uh, you know, confrontation or, or uh, discussion, uh, that will be taken large scale when, you know, you have news outlets and ed editorials and activists and all these other forces trying to shape or describe this problem. Right. And then things kind of get reified, right? They they sort of get a little bit set in stone. And that's unfortunate because then things can't sort of shift and be fluid and transform, hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when you're aware of this or entering into an awareness of the... Um, the possibility that as a psychiatrist, you can be entering into a relationship with the disorder that, you know, is, is mm -hmm. actually productive or gives way to mm -hmm. feedback. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. How do you navigate not completely succumbing to the uh, somebody wrote on one of my threads the other day? I, I just made this joke about the replication crisis in psychology having to do ultimately with human beings being snowflakes. Right. Like that's the problem. Like we're all just snowflakes. So there's no way to reproduce these results. It, it was just a joke. Right. OK. Um, and then somebody comes along, some science minded person comes along and says, well, psychology is all bullshit. It's just it's a completely shit discipline because it's not based on these other principles. So 
given that, you know, approaching the discipline with some humility and saying that it can probably be a little bit more murkier than we like to assume, that doesn't mean that it's not without merit or without uh, substance in the way that it does treat these disorders. So, Well, and in some, that's a really interesting thing, because in some sense, we might be getting into trouble by pretending like it's a science, you okay. know? And and um, I'm I'm not going to get involved in whether it is or whether whether it isn't. But in terms of clinical practice, my experience is is not a science. Yeah. And and the thing is that when you treat it like a science, then then you're looking for these things, and you hmm. think that you know it's like it's like someone walks into the office of a doctor and they've got a really sore throat and they've got um, swollen glands, right? And the doctor's probably thinking, I need to do a strep test, right? And then you do the strep test and there's the organism or, or whatever. I mean, when I was a kid, they would culture it and they'd be able to, you know, look at, the, I don't know how they do the rapid strep test, but there's evidence of the organism. And yeah. then you give the antibiotic that kills that organism. Someone walks into my office and says, you know, I'm having trouble sleeping and I'm feeling sort of tearful and you know, I could be like, aha, depression. But but really, what is depression? What is it? It's a it's a subjective experience. Um, you know, it's not like having strep throat. Mm -hmm. It and, and 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 the important thing is like strep throat is you you can be reductive about it. It's due to that organism, right? But a depression, I mean, even if it looks the same between two people it could have two completely different meanings yeah okay so it's like when we assume that it's a science we're more likely to kind of reduce things and flatten them and and i i guess maybe it's like you have to have more of i think the sensibility of a poet or something yeah where where it's it's about sort of attuning and um dipping into metaphorical language and reaching for that, which is not quite, you can't really get your hands around it entirely. And, uh, is making in your experience is making something diffuse as depression effable, taking the ineffable and making it effable or, or taking the incommunicable and the dark and the opaque and, and making it tangible, making it more solid. Is that one process of helping somebody to manage that? Is that, a key component. Yes, I do. I think that's a, that's absolutely what I, th I think I spend a lot of my time doing because I think here's the thing is that our feelings originate in our body. And in the beginning, we don't have words for it. And it may be very subtle, right? Hmm. And so, but the thing is, okay, so then someone comes in and says, I'm depressed. And the first thing I always say when someone says this, well, what do you mean? how do you know you're depressed? Like, what is that to you to be depressed? I, mean, I don't say it in a challenging, obnoxious tone, but I'm interested in really hearing their experience. And if, if we're really getting into it, it'll be a lot of like, um, I, I don't know. I just, you know, it will be, it will be difficult to articulate. And then I think what we do together when it's really working is I'm, I'm reaching in there trying to help find words for it. I'll say, is it like this? The person goes, no, it's not like that. Well, mm. is it like this? Yes, it's like that. The thing is, once you have the right language, it has to be really right. You have to feel that click. Then, then things really do shift, partly because once you've nailed something down into language, you okay. can have a different kind of relationship with it. Yeah. You can talk about it, you can think about it, you can move around it, you can put it over there for a little while, do something else and come back to it and pick it back up. You know, hmm. language allows us to sort of 
have a different relationship with our inner world. Yeah. But it, but it has to be the right language. And often that language is imagistic or metaphorical. Yeah. Well, for you, because you're a Jungian. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. but I'm right also. <laughs> well, it seems like there's a thinking poetically about this. Science has a, something to stand on. It has things that it can stand on. It has a floor. Yes. Whereas yeah. psychology, if you try to reduce things to a floor, you're often going to get that floor wrong. So it's not that you don't have anything to stand on. It's that the standing is a completely different relationship than this reductionist uh, one thing equals another thing equals another thing. Right. Right. Even though if ultimately when we are sophisticated enough with our tools, we can give uh, evolutionary narratives to this or biological narratives to all of these different things, we're still going to have to interact with these things as narrative beings narratively. Yes. I mean, maybe someday, you know, we'll have these tools where we can say like, you know, this thing that happens in your brain makes this emotion. I, I mean, I don't know, you know, but we, we act like we have that now okay. and we don't. Okay. You know, but okay. So acting like you have that and not having that opens you up to one being wrong a lot of the time or every 10 yes. years coming up with a new thing that everybody's going to diagnose this year. Yeah. It's uh, the, the gender thing right now. Um, yeah to for certain people um but it also opens you up to criticism from those hardcore people who are just saying you know this is all shit this is all shit You're, it's just a bunch of language it's just a bunch of poetry i want an answer yeah. i want to get back to whatever you want to get back to or, or whatever it's kind of an right. interesting thing to kind of negotiate and i wonder if um i wonder what kind of humility is required in order to keep this work that you do meaningful um while still being open to, I don't know. I really don't know. Well, it does require this real comfort with uncertainty and a comfort with doubt. And and mm -hmm. this kind of, you said humility. I mean, I think about that term intellectual humility. Mm -hmm. You know, just, you're, you know, sort of just, I could be wrong. I could always be wrong. You, you know, think that... um, I was just going to say, St. Francis had this phrase. He talked about wearing the world as a loose garment. Hmm. And I, I really, there's, there's something about, you know, again, again, it's kind of metaphorical language, but there's something about that. It's like you, you're always sort of trying things on okay. without getting too attached to it. Hmm. Hmm. So I had a question about uh, being comfortable with doubt can also open you up to romanticizing doubt. And one criticism that I think might be applied to Jung is this romanticization of the mysterious, right? Or, mm -hmm. or the, mm -hmm. this, uh, because, you know, like that, I guess there's this story about where, that Jung proposes that in the age of reason, we've lost our mythopoetic kind of understanding. Mm -hmm. So, so mm -hmm. making that proposition and, and I was in, I've been in this Twitter discussion today about Jordan, Pe <laughs> Jordan Peterson's, um, his work and what he's done with the public consciousness and, and, uh, balancing him against John Vervaeke. I don't know if you know John Vervaeke. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah, yeah. he's a Toronto psychologist. He's doing mm -hmm. a series called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. And I think that what Peterson's doing and what John is doing uh, dovetail very well together, but what John is doing is building a very rigorous step-by-step -step, um, story about 
about meaning and about understanding mm -hmm. that predates science so that in actually informs and then brings science into a relationship with the poetic and the mimetic and mm -hmm. and the mytho mm -hmm. the mythic whereas Peterson is is arousing all these mythical forces. In a way, I see him arousing a lot of mythical forces in individuals, and that's why people have such a uh, awakening experience when they listen in to him or or this reaction against him. It's it's very passionate because he's playing with mm -hmm. these passionate uh, mm -hmm. entities, but there can be a danger in that too. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so how do you how do we navigate uh, you know that that kind of being a poet? Uh, but also understanding that a poet has certain downfalls, uh, one of them being overly romantic about things and kind of betraying the ground that he's walking on, which is ultimately reality. Well, and I, I just want to clarify, I do not consider myself a poet. So, <laughs> but, Okay, well, the um, poetic. If you're entering uh, into the poetic, then you have to accept that, you know. Okay. For good um, but, you know, in, in some sense, I mean, it, it's, you're right. You sort of have to you sort of have to remain a little bit tentative about everything, including, you know, the, the importance of doubt or the importance or 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 the poetic or the mystic. It's like you have to apply the same sort of um, tentativeness to every stance, including, you know, sometimes it is right to shelve doubt and say, you know what? No, I really know this. You know, but it's a mm -hmm. kind of constant just um, trying to remain open, I think. Mm -hmm. you, you spoke about that last time that we spoke about these ideologies or these kind of activist cultures or whatever, any sort of fundamentalism, by which yeah. I mean a locking down on a certain sort of program that you then just run on everything. And mm -hmm. you said something about if if what you're participating in, if what you're actively believing in isn't opening you up to more and more experience, then that's one gauge that it's probably not ultimately good. Mm -hmm. And so the, that Did openness, I say that? that's, that's very smart. I'm glad I said that. <laughs> Maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but I think you said that. <laughs> but there, there is this, um, it seems to me that one aspect of wisdom is, uh, is becoming more and more inclusive and being able to put things in their place so that if there is a disharmony, you're able to to embrace the disharmony in such a way that you don't have to stamp things out or, or destroy things or be anti-anything. You just understand that this this problematic thing over here is problematic in its relationship with other things. I'm being very abstract, but... No, no, but I, I'm, I'm right with you. And actually, Jung had a great phrase for this. He called it being able to hold the tension of the opposites. Okay. And, and when, when we do have um, some kind of uh, inner, inner tension, um, you know, sort of, you could even think about it like cognitive dissonance, you know, there is this tendency, we all have it to want to kind of, you know, it's uncomfortable to feel dissonance. It's very uncomfortable. We want to know. We don't want to remain in this place where, well, this thing's true, true, but this other thing, which is totally opposite, is also true. Like, that is really hard, hard for humans. Yeah. So we want to lock down on one or the other. And that is very much the impulse, I think, of fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. And and Jung, Jung talks about the, the requirement to sort of create of yourself a large enough container okay. that you can hold both of these opposites and see what happens, not, not have to collapse it. And 
how does one in your experience how do how do people gain that openness or, or become broader and broader like do you are there any like i guess practical or philosophical <laughs> kind of practices that that you see i mean yeah that's such a big question i i think that's maybe having children of... or <laughs> <laughs> Um, some of it helps from just growing older. No, I, yeah. but I, but I, th I think actually that here's, here's one of the major building blocks I think is this process of, of a, a self-reflective capacity where you can stand aside a little bit. You get a little, you sort of disidentify from every single thought and feeling you have, and you can kind of watch them. And of course that's what mindfulness does. And that's also what psychotherapy cultivates is the ability to reflect on our own inner process. And that's, that's, hmm. that's, a, that gets you a good, good way down the road, I think. And, and so when you, when somebody comes and presents you with a problem and they have this one term and they just use depression and then you go on this kind of uh, scouting mission to kind of see where it comes from, where it, uh, what it feels like and what is it causing in somebody else. And then how do you, do you start to form a map for that in, in your head or, or is it kind of like coincident with them? You guys are building this landscape. Oh, I, th I, I think it's usually very much kind of co-created, you know, I mean, if I've got one map, and it's very different from the client's map, then that's like not good, you know. So, so yeah, we're, we're like kind of exploring it together and going, is it maybe like this? And okay, then we have this piece. And like, I, I do think that in a sort of good analysis, part of what happens is the, the, the patient and I co-create a new often richer more nuanced narrative okay mm -hmm. than the one they came in with okay. and where do dreams work in to that in your experience is um, are, is dreams kind of a co-creation with oneself in a way like between the... well let's see i i think of dreams as um really sort of straight up a communication from the unconscious it's like hey consciousness here's how things look down here and uh and I, I really think about you know Jung said something like dreams are the best you know dreams are not trying to obfuscate something which is what Freud said but dreams are the best um uh expression of something that this is the best most precise way that something could be expressed and, and if you think about it dreams are extraordinarily fine-tuned in their use of imagery but of course it's not it's not really it doesn't there isn't this the same that part of the psyche doesn't have the same access to language so there are these there's images they have just have layer and layer of meaning and significance and there's all this nuance hmm. um but it, but it's really it's usually just a you know hey here's how things look from here and often that looks usually it looks at least a little bit different than how things look with our conscious mind so so i yeah i do you know in terms of sort of how that works in the process and forming a new map i mean usually the story that we have about ourselves is, is very much one that's associated with ego consciousness but but the unconscious might see things you know really differently hmm. and so bringing in this other part of the story kind of opens up new possibilities it kind of gives us more choice okay and how is interpretation the correct 
frame of reference and incorporating a dream into somebody's narrative? And if it's not interpretation, what is that process of incorporation? Well, I mean, interpretation is certainly the word that's used, but I, I feel a little uncomfortable with it because it implies somehow that there is a correlate, you know, that there's one, you know, when you interpret something from another language, there's there's one, you know, way of languaging it that's more or less right, you know, and that's, it's not that way with dreams because it's so much more well I want to come back to sort of poetic really and and never and never really knowable you know I mean you you can't you can't ever really fully get to the bottom of you you probably can never really completely exhaust a dream image Mm -hmm. so it's really hubristic to sort of say well I'm going to interpret that I'm going to tell you what that means you know, um, but but it is this um, kind of circumambulation of the images in mm. the dream, and and sometimes sometimes it does happen that you come up with a well, I, I think this is really kind of what it's saying, you know, and it and it feels relatively straightforward, maybe not straightforward, but that you can come up with something that feels fairly definite, that the okay. dream is taking a real stance about something. Okay. And that that kind of clicks with the other person. It's like, okay, we we got something there. Sometimes it's really rather opaque, and it's difficult to nail anything down. But but um, but there's value, I think, even in just opening that up because you're making room for the unconscious perspective. Mm-hmm. You use the word circumambulate, which means to walk around something. And mm-hmm. I wonder if uh, while I fully understand it's a metaphor I, I wonder if it can be mapped onto a relationship that we have to visiting someplace in the real world and different ways of visiting things such as when you go to europe and you visit a cathedral or when you go to a mu- museum and you look at different arts and i wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that circumambulation and if that could actually help us to appreciate cultural artifacts as well in our relationship to them uh, as opposed to a tur- tourist uh, I guess there's these two poles the tourist who's just looking for just more experience to catalog and then the uh, I guess the really strict worshiper for which everything mm. has a very strong potent meaning which can get a little bit far in, in the too dense realm and I wonder if, if you have anything to say about that um well, yeah, that's interesting because you're sort of talking about two modes of relating to things, one which would be sort of almost like acquisitive, you know, like, check, I saw the Mona Lisa or something like that. Okay, yeah, as opposed to inquisitive, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, I guess, yeah. Um, it's like, you know, oh, I got it, I, I did that, I can add that to the list, um, versus, versus a more... Um, almost like a receptive state of mind that would look for some kind of mutual interpenetration between, you Mm. know, ourself and maybe the object that we're viewing or the person that we're in dialogue with, um, where, where, where it's, there's a little bit more, uh, kind of openness to see what comes at you Hmm. and, and, and receptiveness to that. Mm -hmm. And in, so, that, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. well, I was going to say, I think it goes back to the sort of how we know things, because if you just need to see the Mona Lisa, you know, which I've done like, oh, OK, there's supposed to check, you know, then then there's not much more to know. Right. It's like 
there it is. Yeah. Where where the, this other state that I'm trying to conjure up is really the it's, we're again in that not knowing place. So sorry, I cut you off. What were you going to no. say? No. Following that, I I went into Paris a few years ago, and we were in the Louvre. <laughs> and you know, wandering around and, and seeing, I spent several days just walking around it and, uh, and yeah, okay. So I'll go see the Mona Lisa. And the thing is I couldn't see the Mona Lisa. All I could see were all the people not even looking at the Mona. They weren't even looking at it. They were, they were doing this with it. They, they weren't even looking at the thing. They were looking at themselves in front of the thing. It was this odd relationship. And so I just kind of walked around and kind of was receptive and open to that. But that, that <laughs> the cultural artifact was lost in that participation or that one sort of participation yeah. in yeah. that cultural artifact. And I wonder if that's, uh, I don't want to be uh, you know negative about our culture, but I wonder if that's one aspect of our culture with regards to social media, with regards to the image and a relationship to ourselves and the image or to ourselves and the image and the event where I take a picture of my food and, and that, that kind of removal that, um, that can very easily lose a really big aspect of being a phenomenal being, being a human being in the world. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly it, um, it, it isn't helped by social media and the tendency to want to sort of document everything with with pictures but i also feel i feel pretty certain that that impulse to want to kind of check boxes is pretty innately human and has been with us for a long time predating the (laughs) smartphone okay well what's that about then in your mind uh um the bucket list What, what is the archetypal meaning of the uh well, I, traveler. okay. So, so, um, I, I think we're, we're, uh, tra- traipsing around the edges of is some ideas that were something that was explored by Ian McGilchrist in his book, the master and the emissary, hmm. the master and the master and his emissary, I think is the title of the book. And he, I think actually that that book relates to everything we've been talking about today. And, and part of the reason I've hesitated to bring up for it's an incredible book. And it's so amazing that even though I read it very carefully, I, I feel like I'd probably have to read it two more times to really do it hmm. justice, even casually. But let me try. Um, so he it's a it's a real tome. And it uses a ton of brain science the kind of split brain research that's been done to talk about the different quality of of the world that comes into being when attended to by the left hemisphere versus the right hemisphere. Okay. And the world that comes into being uh, when attended to primarily by the left hemisphere is very um, mechanistic, it's decontextualized, things are interchangeable, um, it, it's about grasping, nailing things down, um, uh, looking, it's sort of parts instead of the whole. And the world that's conjured up when primarily looked at with the right hemisphere is contextual and related and organic and um, much more about the whole instead of the parts. And, and of course, this is like tremendously oversimplified the way that I'm, I'm, I'm bringing it to us here, but, um, 
there's a really nice RSA animate, like a three minute little animated thing that kind of goes over these ideas. So if you Google like um, the master and his emissary RSA animate, you'll find it. And um, but but in any case, I think that, you know, the 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 the, the part of us that would go to the Louvre and take a selfie with the Mona Lisa, that's like kind of left brain. It's like, look, I did, th- I did the thing and that's yeah. all there is to do, you know? Yeah. And the part that, you know, wanders along the Seine in the, in the twilight and, you know, just takes in the smells and the, and the sights and just mm-hmm. kind of lets, lets ourselves be kind of carried along. That's, that's and then we're sort of more in a right brain place. You know, I, I think one of the things that McGilchrist says, and he, I, I think he makes a really strong case is that over the course of human history, the the, per, the meaning of the title is that the the right brain is the master and the left brain is the emissary, but that the the emissary has betrayed the master and now it's it, we're the tail is sort of wagging the dog. Our culture is so left brain focused. Yeah. Right. And, you know, you were kind of raising this before, I think, when you were asking about, you know, is psychology a science? Like, what ground are we standing on? Are we standing on, you know, sort of hardcore um, uh, empiricism? And it's like, you know, which is very left brain. It's like, well, no, we're not. But there is a there there can be a really constructive relationship between these things. It's not either or. Yeah. Right. But McGilchrist says we're, we're so dominated by the left brain that they're all these gifts are being betrayed or lost or something like mm-hmm. that. And it, we're sort of out of balance. Yeah. So that's the territory I think we're in, in, in yeah. what we're talking about. And I guess the, the, the art is in building that bridge or, or establishing a really rich uh, relationship between those kind of two polarities between the, mm-hmm. the, the checkbox livelihood and the and the just the Dionysian just like I'm just gonna stuff mm-hmm. my face with as much cream based <laughs> pastry as I possibly can you know? yeah <laughs> because the thing is is that whether we like it or not that which is reason that which is logical that which is uh, rational um, that which is objective that which is you know now being called whiteness or whatever that that weird narrative is about but but that stuff has got given us so much and it really does work clearly clearly kind of really stupid and naive maybe is the better word to overlook like just how powerful that is yeah and you get in trouble when you naively overlook powerful things that's a bad idea you know, mm. because because it is so powerful, you can't you 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 know you underestimate it at your own peril. McGillcrest has this lovely kind of I don't want to call it a formula, but he talks about sort of something experience that sort of arises in um, the the right brain is kind of tra- translated by the left brain, and then then there's this kind of final synthesis. You know that that's sort of the way it's supposed to work, and that makes hmm. a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. That makes, I mean, I mean, in, in a way, it's like you were sort of asking about, you know, in essence, kind of how I, I work. And I do think, listen, when I'm sitting with someone and I'm listening to them and things are going really well, what comes up for me is usually very intuitive. Like it might be literally a feeling in my body or it might be a, you're, often it's a, like an image, you know, um, sometimes it's, it's something, but it's usually not verbal, Right. So I'll be sitting with someone and I'll get like, I'll just see this. I'll just see like, um, I don't know. Let me make something up. I'll just see like uh, a beach scene. And I'll be like, 
why am I seeing a beach scene? You know, and I'll hmm. come up with some idea about it and then I might, and then I'll start thinking about it, right? So first there's this kind of intuition about it and then I'll start thinking about it and then I'll put it in language and then I'll say to the person, well, you know, I'm wondering if it sort of feels like this, you know, so it's sort of speaking from my beach scene, whatever that might mean. You know, like you really just need, you really just don't have any time for yourself, you know, or something like that. And yeah. they might go, yeah, you know, that's exactly it. Well, then we've done this thing where we've, we, where there's been some synthesis or some integration between something that was very deeply felt but not able yet to be languaged. Yeah. It was sort of taken over into the the kind of left left brain, which is going to kind of pin things down and make it graspable, something we can hold on to. Yeah. And then, like I was saying before, when you can hold on to something, then you're in a totally different realm with it because you can do lots of things with it. You can manipulate it. Um, but but more so than anything, you can think about it. You can have a different relationship. And so there's this kind of synthesis that's that's um, really f- fertile. Between, you know, so, so hopefully, you know, it can operate like that. It's not an either or, and it certainly is not a rejection of you know rationality or or any of the kind of gifts of of hmm. the left brain. Mm-hmm. Do you ascribe to or have kind of a uh, conceptual understanding of that process of what that intuition is? Is there a, is there language that you use for that, or does it is it just better to not really speak about that? Just kind of say that this is kind of what happens. Um, well, Jung said that intuition was perception perception via the unconscious and I think and again this is really above my pay grade but I think intuition is something like implicit learning too you know which is which has been studied a lot I mean there's people that know a lot about implicit what is learning. that Things is that, that like just well, getting used just, to have a car runs or something like that it you know it's the way that we just know a whole bunch of stuff without really even knowing that we know it mm-hmm. you know that you just sort of pick up that you know um uh, actually, Bernanke talks about this. You know, it's like, how do you know how close you're supposed to stand to someone when you talk about them? Yeah. When you, excuse me, when you talk to them, you know, you, you, you just, <laughs> you just know that. Jungian that slip was, there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, there's just tons of stuff that we just are learning all the time that we don't even know that we're learning it. You know, that's the kind, you know, I think that that's, that's probably something like intuition sort of related mm-hmm. to it. There's a, there's a, there's a way that the, you know, the unconscious is sort of processing or maybe it's better to say we are constantly processing tons of information unconsciously without being aware that we're doing it. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's easy to kind of make it sound very magical. It certainly feels magical, but I don't think that it is. You know, but it. But and by it, it magical, does, you mean some like, sort of projection. How did I? How did I? No, I mean it's like, how did you know that? It's like, oh my god, you know, it feels like it just drops into you from on high, but but really, I'm I'm sure you know it's more of this kind of subtle nervous system to nervous system attunement that's going on, and we're reading each other's kind of fine facial expressions, and mm-hmm. y- you know, and and um, so hmm. so. You know, but it almost never appears in language, so it's really coming from and 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 like an asp a part of us that doesn't have language. It has its own grammar. Would you say that it has its own grammar? Then it still well, has a structure and underlying kind of pattern that yes. is readable. Well, it's symbolic. 
Okay. And, you know, that which is symbolic is very definitely readable and has a structure and a grammar. It's just it's just a somewhat ineffable one. Okay. Uh, well, okay. That could be construed as you just kind of putting this word, again, just like romanticizing the mystery by saying, by just using the word symbolic. So what do you mean by symbolic? What is the understanding? And there's some great, actually very deep philosophical writing about symbolism done by Paul Ricoeur is one of my favorites, but there's also a lot of Jungian stuff about what the symbol is. Mm -hmm. So could you give a little bit more mass in the language landscape? So, you know, one trying to sort of stay close to what we're talking about, I'll, I'll switch up the word metaphorical then for symbolic. Not that I don't think that it's symbolic, but, 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 you know, metaphor communicates an image and, and through putting things together that are, um, that are, that are alike in some way or, or express attention in some way. And, and so, um, you know, for example, here, here was, here was, here was something that came up for me once in a session. Um, I, I saw just in my mind's eye, I just had this image of a, uh, 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 chest that was wrapped in chains at the bottom of the ocean. I this guy was sitting there talking to me about I cannot remember what he was not talking to me about a chest in chains at the bottom of the ocean, but that's what I saw. And so I subnote I though is that that is what you remembered that persists in you, like that that's already very easily graspable yes. with you. You, you forget yes. the context, but that that kind of yes. anchors you in the context. Yes. But, sorry to interrupt. No, that's okay. And so what I, I was like, well, what does that mean? You know, and I sort of sat with it for a minute and eventually I said, I wonder if it feels like there's something you just can't tell me. And he said, yeah, there's this secret I can't tell anybody. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? So that that's what I mean by symbolic. It's not, you know, I, I had this image that corresponded to this sense of something that had to be deeply buried and sealed, Right. So, I mean, I mean, I, you know, you know, in, in some way that which is symbolic or metaphorical, again, can feel kind of esoteric, but it's really just the way we think. It's just hardwired. It's mm-hmm. very natural. Mm-hmm. We do it all the time. I mean, you know, um, McGilchrist and Bernanke and others have made the point that language like human language is is all metaphoric or it's based on metaphor. Most human yeah. language is based on bodily metaphors. The one thing that I wanted to add to my own conception of symbolism, and I do believe it comes from Ricoeur, is that the the metaphor, it, he's got some fascinating ways of, of showing how metaphor functions in language. But you're, you're basically uh, aligning patterns so that you can constantly expand and build your understanding because you're, you're, you're seeing one thing in another and then seeing another in another. And that's also, I think it was Aristotle who said, if you want to know what the definition of a genius is, it's somebody who masters metaphor, which just means that you turn reality into a Lego set where you can always figure out how they build. And so you can just keep on building. It's very, an assemblance structure, um, or, or mode of being. Um, but the symbol, like you were saying about the dream or what we, think about with with true high works of some of of i guess literary mm-hmm. art and poetic art is that it is inexhaustible it, it, it at once 
buries itself into you in a very concrete form where you can't get around it or it's just it's really real but the but it it never becomes less real when you tug it apart when you interpret it 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 always like it, it emits this persistent power and, and there's ways of literary criticism like it with uh the bible uh northrop fry who was a was a canadian um uh english professor he goes through william blake and he goes through the bible and just he deconstructs the bible just by the images that are repeated over and over and over a long time and then you're able to to unwrap this document by showing that there's this not by attacking it as though it has all these contradictions. Like when you say the Bible isn't true because there's this contradiction, you're saying, well, there's all these, something that supersedes contradiction. There's this constant image of a field or a shepherd or, or just these basic things that, that accumulate meaning over time and then constantly refer back to themselves. So I just wanted to get a little bit more into the, mm-hmm. what, what the symbol is or the symbolic well, of course, that was a huge deal to Jung, was the symbol. And he said, you know, no transformation is possible without without a symbol. And, you know, Jung, Jung thought that, as you're saying, that symbols were sort of inexhaustible, that they could never be entirely known, that they were that they were sort of they, they pointed beyond themselves to something essentially unknowable. Mm. So so it, it is not this sense of that which is reductive and can be reduced. That's why this whole idea of like dream symbol dictionary is like, yeah. you know, you know, when you're swimming in water, it means that, da, 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 yeah. da, da, da. you know, that's reductive. It's like that the, there's yeah. an equal sign. But the, 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 the idea of a symbol is it's just sort of inherently at its core, finally unknowable, but it points towards something and it's it's the best expression of something. But it's. It's not. It's not something you can completely undo. Mm-hmm. I was thinking. You can't empty it of meaning. Yeah, and I was thinking about when I asked you about dream interpretation, and you came up with just what I thought. It's just not this correlation. This means that it's more of a. It's not an interpretive process. It's in a translation process where you're saying that that you're you're ha- you're trying to bring this conversation into knowing like there's this conversation going on between one's what you call the subconscious and the consciousness. And so what you go in there to do, I guess, would be to make that to, 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 to speak it in, to take one language set and speak it in another language set, mm-hmm. which does have a, a interpretive function, but it, 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 there's, there's a lot of layers of, of contextual and, and relational understanding that's going on in there. Well, and also dreams are, you know, essentially I think of them as, um, you know, they're, they're, they're emotional products, you know, they, they, they Hmm. always have an emotion in them and we have emotions about them. And, and so it, it, it's more, it's more important to me what the feeling is or how it made us feel or, um, what our feeling reaction was to it on waking up, you know, rather than, than sort of this, like, uh, you can replace this image for this word and then you've got it, you know, it's got mm-hmm. it. You have to feel it. And it, and if the interpretation is correct, you will feel something. Hmm. So it's a real affective experience. And yeah, which goes back to, I guess there's just no defense against the psychology is shit or poetry is shit kind of stance. You're like, well, yeah, but shit, but, but even you saying the word shit, 
has an emotional content. You're making an emotional kind of assertion of this stuff. You're saying it's stinky. You're saying that it's excrement. Uh -huh. It's a byproduct yeah, yeah. of a of the more primary, uh, you know, process of 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 eating. So so it's bringing to light the poetic understanding is bringing to light things that I think that we can do without insofar as we need to build a knife you know you can't have a feeling about the steel until you right. you know you have to have a very core understanding of the material and then once you master that then you can start adding artistic and and like how it how it grips and and how it balances and, and start to mm -hmm. incorporate uh, uh effective understanding of, of mm -hmm. that implement mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that's a that's a nice metaphor that there's the function of the thing and the you know the sort of nuts and bolts of building it and then there's something else too that mm -hmm. we might add i wanted to i think we're i think this is our, our hour windows up but i did want to talk okay. to you about gender but I, that's <laughs> too big and i think we already covered that but again it's just inexhaustible to me what yeah, yeah. gender is and and how it means and you were thinking you brought up when we were talking about intuition it just like my intuition was that I have this I inside of me or in my own uh, mythological landscape, I have this these female entities that that provide me with with different sorts of intuitive understandings of the world. Uh, one's kind of like this wicked understanding where how everything kind of sinks together and, and becomes knotted. One's more graceful and uh, which which has problems with it because it's very attractive. But at the same time, you get enmeshed in it. And then one's mm -hmm. very young and, and uh, very curious. But my 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 symbol of curiosity is this little girl with these eyes that will eat the world if if she doesn't <laughs> you know if, she, if yeah. we're not careful with her and stuff so i just wonder i don't know if there's a question or if you have any uh thing to talk about that you want to talk about with with the concept of gender i guess one thing that i asked mm -hmm. um kenneth zucker last week when i interviewed him and he's a uh, sexology uh psychologist and, uh, who deals with uh adolescent gender dysphoria or gender identity disorders disorders i asked him because we were talking about the non-binary uh mm -hmm. idea and i and i said if society abolished gender tomorrow would it just be resurrected the day after tomorrow? Is, mm -hmm. it, is it something mm -hmm. that it, we can actually escape from? If we want to dismantle this binary, will it not just pop up? Is it not just something that is so deeply rooted in, in us that it's inescapable? Uh, I know. It's just, it's just so hard. I mean, first of all, there's this conflation of sex and gender, right? Yeah. Sex, sex is, you know, biology and... And gender is the, you know, sort of expression of social roles. And I think, I, you know, I personally think that by and large, uh, the gendering that goes on in terms of clothing and norms, it's probably mostly socially constructed. Although, you know, I think it's also pretty clear that there are population-wide personality differences between males and females. And some of those are influenced by culture, certainly, but some of them are probably pretty hardwired and uh so it's just like where do you where what where do you cut with a knife about what's what's you know could we abolish gender well what would that even mean you know would that mean that you know we all have a unisex dress code i mean okay but but people are still going to act in ways that are informed by their biology and to some extent 
you know, it, it is, I mean, well, here's, here's a, here's a story. The primatologists, I, I can't remember if this was Jane Goodall or someone else, but doesn't matter what they noticed is they were watching chimps and the the older chimps would take the adolescent chimps out and teach them how to do that thing with a stick where they take a little stick and they strip and they stick it down the end hole and it comes up you know they had to teach that right so they'd bring the juveniles out and and there would be some juveniles that were like sitting quietly around the circle watching the elders do this and there'd be some juveniles that were like 20 feet away roughhousing well take a guess what was the difference between those two groups <laughs> the female juveniles were sitting complacently watching and the male juveniles were roughhousing it's like what happens in every schoolyard you know what yeah. i mean so you know some of this is just i'm sorry folks but it's just you know there's some element that's hardwired in terms of the psychology of it you know uh, this is a little bit of a leap but but i i know we're we're up on the hour but you know young said one of his big ideas was that every man had an inner feminine and every woman had an inner masculine. And it's our, it's our job in a way to, to get to know and to a certain extent live that out, you know? So it's sort of like, we're all both, you know, I sort of sometimes the non-binary stuff say, yeah, but we're all non-binary. We all have traits of both masculine and feminine. Mm -hmm. And, uh, which isn't non-binary. It's just, uh, auto binary maybe, or, or like a kind of inner binary, like, uh, not to say that we're, we're we're neither, but to say that we're both. Obviously, you know, unless we're intersex, we're either male or female. And but uh, our biology does not dictate our personality mm -hmm. and it doesn't dictate our psychology either. Mm -hmm. And and to really be whole. Um, it makes it it requires that we embrace those traits that we may not have developed, uh, hmm. um, you know, say readily in the first half of life, maybe it's very easy for us to, you know, kind of be the guy and be masculine. Well, then in the second half of life, maybe it's important that we get in touch with that aspect of ourselves that's more feminine, feminine. Mm -hmm. And why is that important? I, I think Jung talks about why that, that integration yeah, is important. Yeah, I mean, in a word, because the goal is wholeness. Which doesn't mean like you're a citadel that's cut off from the world. No. That's one form of wholeness, but what is this other form of wholeness? It means um, making as much of yourself conscious as possible. Oh, okay. Hmm. Which doesn't mean reducing it into language, but, uh, but I guess manifesting it in action? Perhaps? Or maybe maybe having a relationship with it. Okay. Having a conscious relationship with it. Okay. Well, um, thanks for this conscious relationship. <laughs> Somewhat. There were some intuitive <laughs> things going on there. <laughs> so intuitive intuition is part of consciousness. So. Okay. All right. It's the radar, uh, or the uh, yeah, I guess the radar that the submarine uses to like figure out when the, the bi megalodon is coming up on it. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, Lisa, thanks for your time. Uh, Thank thanks for you. this conversation too. Yeah. Great. I really enjoyed it. All right. Have a good day. Take care.